Let's have a beatbox off. Hold on. <laughs> no, no. no. Okay. <laughs> Why do I work with boys? What? I, I got big like lips. A- Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I am Justin Pardee. I'll be your auditory tour guide on this journey to wisdom from the scriptures. This is Stephanie Heen. I'll probably be riding somewhere in the backseat trying to change the music. (laughs) (laughs) I love backseat drivers. And that is, of course, the incomparable Pastor Matt Brown. How you doing, man? Good. Welcome back from Chicago. I was in Idaho. It's good to be back. Welcome back to you. I held down the fort, guys. Don't worry about it. Yeah, good job. Thank you very Good much. Good job keeping California alive. Do what I can. We could vote for you. We could put you on a ballot initiative. Stephanie Keene for political office or something, something <laughs> wow. like that. Hey, so we are up to 97 reviews. I'm super excited because I'm hoping by the time Easter weekend comes around, we will have crossed into 100 reviews. Still all five stars, guys. Wow. We're on a streak here. Yeah, so here's, uh, here's two. This one is from One Sweet Mullet. All that is one, the greatest name ever. All one word, no spaces, dude. It's seriously, it be. yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. It's seriously my new favorite podcast, and I think we can probably trust him based on his fine, oh, yeah. well, he's fine taste of hair. My new favorite username. So indeed. And then we got one from Jeff Woolley. It's one of my favorite ways to learn because people submit great questions. That's you, the listeners, and Matt spits theological fire all over the place. I do spit well. He in said a, in a good way. In a good way. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. What, I don't. Is there a bad way to spit theological fire? Yeah, that's um, why people don't sit on the front row at church because a lot of spits coming. You know, that's like you uh, swing by uh, Mexican food before you go. Well, all right, we got some uh, Q and A to jump into. So we've got some questions from Luke chapter eleven, Luke chapter twelve that we'll go with, and. Um, you actually were preaching from Luke chapter 11. We talked a whole bunch about prayer and Travis, uh, who is the leader of a group, sent in a question and here it is. God is omniscient. So he knows all things that are, were, and are to come. So thank you, Travis, by the way, for defining the term omniscient in the question itself. God is omniscient. So he knows all things that are, were, and are to come. So when we pray, can we change God's will? Or is God simply changing our hearts? Sometimes it feels as if God already has a plan and knows the outcome. If that's the case, what's the point of prayer? Yeah, so there's there's two questions that he's asking. One is a question about, you know, is, is there a real reason that we're praying? And two, you know, there's a question about the omniscience of God. So let's deal with the, the prayer portion first. And remind me to come back to the, the second about omniscience, Stephanie. You got it. So number one, you know, wh- why should we pray? Does God already know what we're going to pray before we ask? Yes, because God knows us better than we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's why David says this prayer. He in uh, I believe it's Psalms fifty one six. He says, "You know, Lord, reveal the truth in me in my inner places, in my inner sanctuary." He actually calls it my in my secret heart. There are things that God knows about us that we don't know about ourselves, and so part of the process of prayer is learning to understand what we want. And so I use the example of when I was praying for my marriage and I talked about God changed Mm -hmm. Tammy, changed Mm -hmm. Tammy, and then I switched to God changed me or changed our marriage, our marriage. And then I switched ultimately to God changed me. And then that's what fixed my marriage Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, God, God ultimately knows what I need before I even know what I need. But what he wants to teach me through the process of prayer is I need to discover what it is that I need so that he can give me my daily bread. And so, yes, we need to learn to pray because, 
you know, prayer primarily changes us, not God. Mm -hmm. However, I think that, you know, he has a slight misunderstanding of omniscience. And so the doctrine of omniscience is basically Christians trying to brag about, you know, the mind of God. So how smart is God? God is all knowing. He knows everything. And so we got to be careful when we, we talk about God. And I use this illustration to describe God. You know, when my son was three years old or four years old, if you asked your dad, how tall is your dad? Well, he would raise his hand as high as he possibly can. My dad's this tall, but the reality is he just cut me in half. Mm -hmm. And so when we say God is Mm -hmm. omniscient, I I understand what theologians are trying to say is there's there's nothing that is outside of God's ability to know. But what that turned into is we've made God a slave to knowledge, which I I do not hold. What I would say is God knows what he wants to know Mm -hmm. and God can choose to not know what he doesn't want to know. For example, Jesus Christ says he does not know the final end. Mm-hmm. I believe that he freely chose to not know that. And so God has an ability that we don't have, and that is to withhold information from himself. And so, you know, there's a lot of theologians that would lose their minds at what I'm saying because they feel like somehow I'm degrading God, and that's not what I'm doing at all. What I'm actually saying is God's omniscience is so powerful and so amazing. And yet at, some, at the same time, he knows all and yet is not a prisoner to knowledge. And he can in some way experience life with us in relationship. And so I think that there are legitimate circumstances where the people of God pray and God changes his mind. Moses pleased repeatedly before God. And the Bible actually says, and God changed his mind. Mm-hmm. He, he changed what he was going to do. And so one of the problems is, 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 you know, when Christians get into the sovereignty of God, we look at God's will and say, well, God's will will prevail no matter what we do. And so what I would say is, yeah, God has a will. And so what does that mean? So let's take World War II, for example. It was the will of the American people to defeat the Nazis. That was going to happen no matter what. America was stronger. We were more powerful. We had more weapons. You know, ultimately Germany and Japan didn't have a a, a chance. And they Mm -hmm. actually knew that Mm -hmm. um, because America's army was so massive. However, there are adjustments that are made within the context of destroying Nazi Germany. And so I think that God, within the context of his sovereign will, you know, saving all those who will believe in Jesus Christ, ultimately becoming, you know, the victor in battle, right? So the outcome is fixed, but how that outcome happens, I believe that there's maneuverability in there and we pray and what we do, I believe it matters. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I don't share the gospel with my friends, they may not know Jesus. That's a real consequence for my disobedience. Mm-hmm. And so we got to be careful that we don't, you know, kind of become fatalists, right? Well, it's already all written out and, and I have no part to play and I have, um, you know, nothing to do in this. And so what I would say is, yes, God can absolutely change his mind. And, and, and when you look at scripture in the entirety, he seems to actually invite us to ask him to do that. Like Abraham begging for, you know, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, is there 10 righteous? Is there five righteous, 50 righteous, right? And and God seems to be genuinely engaged in that conversation. And so we can pray and ask God to do things. And even when God says, I'm going to destroy you, when he says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem all the way to the end. I mean, Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future and a hope. What God is saying is this didn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. Because what I want for you is to bless you, to give you a future and to give you hope. However, you were given every opportunity to repent and turn and you did not. And I believe those were legitimate opportunities. And I mean, think about the book of Jonah. Why doesn't Jonah want to preach to Nineveh? Because he says, I know you are merciful, God. Mm-hmm. I know that you will relent your judgment upon these people if they repent of their sins. And what's amazing is, right, the pagan... And, and I'll talk about what that word means in a second. 
you know, the pagan Ninevites, they repent and God blesses Nineveh and it becomes an amazing city. So you're going to ask me what is pagan? Yeah, let's do pagan. Yeah, yeah. Pagan means they don't have a relationship with God. So pagan means the Gentile world, uh, people that don't know uh, the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, uh, you know, Jesus, they, they don't know him. And so they behave in ways that, you know, just are, are not God-like, are not Christ-like. And so um, it's amazing so many times in scripture, the people who don't know God are quicker to respond to God's offer of repentance than those who supposedly are followers of God. So yes, yes, pray, 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 because you can change God's mind in something and he, and he has he is interacting with us you know in this process and so you know are are you going to change God's ultimate will no mm-hmm. you know God's ultimate will is that every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord Jesus Christ is the anointed one and everyone will be held accountable for what they do with him and so um you know, and I, like I said, people are going to lose their minds, but you have to be so careful with theology because, right, like my son, my dad's this big. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing is I'm holding my hand up as high as I can. It still falls short of who I am. And, and I'm a man. God's not a man. God's God. Right. And so, you know, God can know whatever he wants to know. And, and what, what I believe is, is God can freely, like Jesus does, choose to not know. And it's interesting, right? The Bible says when we confess our sins, God says they're actually as far as the east is from the west. What does that mean? They don't exist. Mm-hmm. They've not just been absolved, but they're gone. Right. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. We, we can't do that. Like I can forgive you, but I can't forget what you did. Right. But God seems to have the ability to do that. It, it, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So. Um, our next question is from Bree in Shannon's group. And it's about, um, based on Luke eleven thirty three. 33, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. And Brie asks, if you've done something in your past and confessed it to God, but have not shared or confessed it with others, would that be considered still living in darkness? How do you determine what should be solely confessed to God and what you should confess to God and the person wronged or another person? Like yeah, I would encourage you always to confess to someone. It doesn't matter what it is. Now, you need to be very careful and cautious. Um, you know, for example, if there's something like, let's say that you're married that's in the past, you need to use great, great counsel and wisdom because... Um, you don't want to trip up your spouse's sin. And so what I would do is I'd go to a pastor, a counselor, somebody that I trust, someone that can hold confidentiality. Because when people confess to me, I don't share it with anyone, right? I hear their confession, you know, unless of course, you know, I feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, okay, we need to go to your spouse. We need to talk to your best friend about this. But what they need to do is to experience healing is they need to share that with someone. Because the reality is just sharing it with God is not enough. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be whole and healed. And that's what we want to experience in our lives. And so here's what I would say is, if there's something that you feel like you might need to confess, and I've done this, man. Um, I mean, there were things that I did in college that like literally 15 years later, I'd ask God for forgiveness. And I went to a friend of mine as a pastor. I said, I need, just need to share these things with you. And I, I confessed them and, and I asked him, I said, you think I need to go back and talk with these people? He's like, nope. You're good. Move on. Be free. And so, um, you know, if you don't feel free of something, I would absolutely 100% confess it because you. I don't think you've experienced healing yet. And so, again, we don't tell everyone everything. That's stupid. But we do need to confess to wise Christians who love God and love us and who are trustworthy with information. Um, you know, people are always so worried, you know, 
when they when they tell me things 10 years they'll see me years later they're like yeah you remember i shared that i'm like i, I don't remember <laughs> because i don't hold it i don't hold on to it and um i'm not saving that for later to zing somebody i am sitting in the place of christ i'm hearing the confession and I'm reminding them that they're forgiven. And that's why I tell people, you are right. forgiven. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, we're forgiven when we confess to God. James 5, 16 says, we're healed of that sin, or at least the process of healing can begin when I confess that to someone else. And so, you know, y- there are some situations where you, na- you may need to go back and make it right with people that you've wounded. Like one of the things I think Christians do is, you know, they've, they've hurt a bunch of people. Um, you know, I did this, for example, with my girlfriend before Tammy. So uh, my girlfriend before, you know, Tammy, we were in an immoral relationship. We, we weren't living for Christ. And when the whole Facebook thing started up, I saw her on Facebook and I told my wife, I said, I need to ask her for forgiveness because I, I was not an example of who Jesus is. So mm-hmm. I got my wife's permission, right? Because I'm talking with an old girlfriend, right. which is a little weird thing. And I just sent a note and said, hey, I just want to ask for your forgiveness because what I didn't want her to think is, is that I was running around being a pastor, acting like I was perfect and I never made mistakes. Right. And so, so many Christians, you know, I see, they move on like those mistakes and those wounds never happened. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to release my ex-girlfriend from the sin that I committed against her and the pain that I caused in her life so that she could pursue Christ. I'm not responsible for whether or not she chooses Christ. But what I am responsible is, is to be a Christian and seek forgiveness and say, hey, look, I blew it. And what was amazing is she sent me a note back. She's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We were young, stupid, you know, go on with your life. And and we've never chatted again. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't looking for a relationship. I'm not looking to, you know, connect with a, a, a long lost love. I was just trying to say, hey, could you forgive me? Um, because I mean, at some point in time, somewhere, right, my name might come up and yeah, Matt's a pastor. Can you believe that? He's a total idiot on that guy. What? And now she can say, well, yeah, but he's different. Well, how do you know? He actually reached out to me and asked for forgiveness for something that happened over 20 years ago. Right. I mean, over 24 years ago. I mean, I don't know how long it was at the time, but you know, I think we need to learn to ask for forgiveness. Like I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago when I did the series on honor, I went back to my old boss mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I wrote a nasty letter when I left, I was upset. And now I'm a pastor in this community and I realized I didn't honor my boss. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had some legitimate gripes. I do. I, I feel right. like the way I was treated was not right, but what I did was wrong. And so I went back to them and said, hey, I just want to say, I'm sorry for how I acted to you guys. I was young and stupid and prideful. And would you forgive me? And what's amazing is I thought they wouldn't remember and they remembered exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, of course we forgive you. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. They remembered. Uh, and we need to realize that, that we represent Christ to people who don't know him. And I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone, you know, keeping them from coming to Jesus. I want everybody to be saved. And so I would rather ask for forgiveness, you know, err on that side than have somebody withhold a grudge from me because I've hurt them or wounded them. And I haven't said, hey, I'm sorry. Yeah. Man, I think one of the things that's so cool about confessing to other people is that it, they can help us. Um, tangibly experience how God actually views us and forgives us. I remember just a couple of years ago, waking my wife up in the middle of the night and confessing to her, you know, pornography that I was, you know, embracing that very evening, you know, mm. while she and our kids were asleep. Mm. And her response in that moment was so profound as she um, just was so quick to forgive and speak grace mm. and, uh, you know, like not send me back out to the couch, but literally yeah. invite me to come in the bed with her. and. Um, I didn't sleep that night because I just was laying there thinking, man, if my wife can forgive me that quickly, like right here in this moment, how much 
greater is God's ability to forgive yeah. and to help me move forward and to call me into the light. So Yeah, and I, I would say that's that's where we all want to be and in, in the relationships are the most intimate. We want those to be the most real. And what I find is oftentimes in marriages, that's where people hide the most. Right. Because they're afraid of being judged. And uh, we're going to talk more about that this Easter weekend, which I'm so excited. And uh, you'll hear it here first, but you'll hear it then is, you know, I talk about sin at Sandals, not to to make us feel bad, but to teach us how to feel love. And so, because it's in those moments where we receive grace for the wrongs that we've committed, that we actually experience what real love is. Totally. And that's why we need to talk about real sin. Right. Okay, so Jesus, who's in Jake's group, he actually asked this question because verse 36 says, if you're filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. And he asked, how do I become this person that has no dark corners? Yeah. Well, the apostle Paul talks about his conscience being clear. And so, so how does that happen? In 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul says, you know, this is a trustworthy saying that should be accepted amongst all all churches. He says, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, which I think we all agree with. That's why Christ came. But then Paul says this. Now, think about this. The apostle Paul is responsible for 13 letters of the New Testament. He is responsible for, you know, commissioning Luke to write Luke and Acts for Theophilus. So, if you look at that, he's responsible for 15 of the 27 books of the New Testament. So, almost everything we know about Jesus, what he did, what happened, right? It all comes from Paul we would think he'd be the most righteous person on earth. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he mm-hmm. says, and I am the worst of them all. It's not Judas. Right. It's me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how did that happen? The apostle Paul invited God's light into every area of his life. And so the gospel of John says that what the world does is, is they scurry from the light like cockroaches. You know, people who don't confess Christ and don't, they're like cockroaches. The second the light turns on, they run to the darkness. What the Christian wants to do is like you did with your wife is the second you send, you expose it to the light. And what happened? You experienced grace, mm-hmm. you experienced the love. And so what we want to do is we want to maintain a life where we confess, not just what we do. Cause I think about, that's where usually we feel like, oh, I need to confess. I did this. What I've learned to confess is not just my actions, but I've learned to confess my thoughts mm-hmm. and my feelings. So where's my heart? Where's my mind? Because typically, right, before I do something stupid, I think something stupid or I feel something stupid. And so we have to learn to share those things, you know, with our friends, with our spouses and, and confess those thoughts, you know. Um, and I think that's, that, that's how the house becomes clean. When we look at our life and we don't just look at our, our deeds, because the Pharisees, right, were more righteous than anybody according to what they did. Great. But Jesus says, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, corruption and hypocrisy. So the outside of the cup is clean, right? Our actions, but they never talked about their thoughts and their feelings. Mm -hmm. They never talked about those things. And those things were darker, you know, than the darkest deeds of what people were doing on the outside. And so we we need to invite Jesus into our thoughts and into our feelings. And ultimately that will change our actions. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know if that makes it clear, but um, the purpose of the light right? Which is not us, it's Christ. It's to bring it into our house, which is what? Bring it into your life, bring it into your home and let it illuminate every area of your life. And so as a Christian, you're not going to know every area that's sinful when you first become saved. Over time, you're going to learn, okay, I, I need to change these attitudes. I need to change these feelings. I need to change these actions. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. Okay, Jesus has one more really quick question because... I love this. Questions from Spanish Jesus. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, In verse 44, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you? Um, For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. And he just was asking what hidden graves are. Are these basically just like buried bodies? Yeah, so in, in Jewish culture, you know... It's, you know, like in our American culture, we have zero respect for, for graveyards. You know, pe- people, you know, decimate them. They right. they go and they drink and they party. Yeah. You know, at Halloween, people act stupid. In the Jewish culture, you would never do that. You respect the dead person who lives beneath by not stepping on it. And so the idea was, not only do you respect the person, but if you step on it, you're unclean. You're ceremonially unclean and not allowed to worship for a period of seven days. And you have to go through this rigorous process of cleansing yourself so that you can be made right before God. And so what he's saying is people that are interacting with you because you're not right, because you're not real, they're interacting with corpses. And so not only are you unclean, but you're causing others that you are supposedly teaching and leading, you're causing them to sin. And so that's the problem with hypocrisy or religiosity or, you know, this false belief that I'm better than everybody else is it doesn't just affect me. You know, Jesus calls them blind guides leading the blind. Mm -hmm. You're both going to fall into the ditch. And so, you know, the, the idea of a ditch is, you know, this picture of the pit of Sheol in, in, in the Old Testament, we, we call it now hell. Um, but it's this idea of, look, man, you, you have, you've got to, to get real with yourself. And so um, you're pretending to be something you're not. And so that's what a hidden grave is. And so, you know, um, Jesus will later talk about polishing those tombstones. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can make it look beautiful on the outside, but what's underneath it? It's right. a corpse. And so that's the whole idea is, before we come to Christ, we're dead in our sins. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are born again. We come to life. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, arise, O sleeper, awake from the dead. And so it's just that idea of coming to life. Got it. Uh, we're going to move into Luke 12 now. Yay, Luke 12. Um, and just starting off was, I pulled something out of verse five, um, but I tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you, then throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one to fear. Does God kill people. Like I know that death is a result of sin and that the Bible also says that God desires that none should perish, but that verse is really intimidating. Yeah, absolutely. God kills people. I mean, ultimately every death that's ever occurred is in the hands of God. So, so whether that death occurred as the consequence of sin, you know, um, like, I mean, we're all going to die inadvertently, you know, not because of the hand of God directly, but because of the effect of sin in our life. But Romans 8 says that God subjected all creation to a curse. So God has done all of this to teach us uh, a lesson, to teach us truth, to, to draw us to repentance. And so, yes, absolutely, you know, God kills people. I mean, re- read the Bible. It's very, very clear. Man, he, he destroys his own people, the Israelites, over and over and over again because they're not repentant. You know, he refers to them as whores, as prostitutes, uh, loving and longing and worshiping other gods and engaging in behaviors. You know, God sees himself as the husband and his believers as his wife, and he demands faithfulness and he demands integrity in their relationship. And so, yes, he gives all kinds of grace, but, you know, the Bible says he's slow to anger, but it doesn't say he doesn't get angry. The Bible says he's merciful, but it also says that he can he can experience wrath. And so, yes, absolutely, God can, you know, kill people, and um, he's God. And and like I tell people, when God kills you, it's not a sin; it's just your time. And so, um, <laughs> you, you know, you need to be very very aware of this. That that's a clear teaching throughout Scripture that God can call you, can call your life at a moment at a moment's notice. So, 
Uh, I don't know if we're gonna have a question on the rich young ruler in this passage, but the yeah. rich young ruler's life is called. Tonight, this, your very life is demanded of you. So what happened? God said, you're done. Mm-hmm. What did he do? He, he kills the rich man in this story who's a fool mm-hmm. because he spent his whole life on money and things and building bigger barns. And he was, he was an idiot. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us need to realize this, that you know I think God is going to speak to you through his Holy Spirit. He's going to speak to you through love. He's going to extend mercy. And if that doesn't work, he's gonna have a one-on-one conversation with you in heaven, which means you're dead. <laughs> so um, you, you gotta be very, very careful and this is why, again, you know, we talked about this last week. We've made God so loving, we've rendered him impotent of right. wrath and judgment. Yeah, yeah. And we, we need to understand that, that the great day of the Lord, the day that all of human history is marching towards is this day of judgment, where we will be held responsible for the denial of God, you know, living our own way, not, not living under the fact that we've been created. I mean, look at our country right now. We are rejecting God in every way. Mm-hmm. morally, sexually, philosophically. I mean, you are considered an idiot and a fool if you believe in God at many of our religious institutions. Well, how's that gonna work on the day of judgment when they stand before God? Who's gonna be the fool? Mm-hmm. So so yes, um, you know, God is loving and merciful and kind, but we need to be very, very careful that we have a healthy fear of God. So to me, um, you know, you, I know you and I have talked about Blackfish, the, the, the TV show. And so, you know, the whole story about Blackfish is what happened at SeaWorld. They forgot what they're swimming with. Mm-hmm. It's called a killer whale, <laughs> right? I mean, it's called a killer whale. And they're shocked when these things kill. Right. And I think that's the way Christians are with God is we don't realize we're not just swimming with a killer whale. We're swimming with the one who's, who created the whale. Right. And we think it's our buddy, right? And we're doing tricks and flips and look what I can do with God. Yeah. And you need to remember, right? When that whale, when that killer whale decides to do whatever it does, you're hosed, man. Yeah. And so we need to remember, we, we need to have, and it's not that, that I think that those guys should have been afraid of the killer whales, but they, they forgot to fear them. Mm-hmm. They, for, they forgot what they're dealing with. They forgot the power. And we need to never forget the, the power of God. And we need to have a healthy fear. Not like a, we don't need to be terrified and coward because he's our heavenly father. He's put his spirit in our hearts and, and that cries out, Abba, father, but he is God. Right. And um, we, if you don't have a healthy fear of God, you don't know him. You don't know him. So these people are like, he's my friend. He's my buddy. You know, the word friend, you know, in terms of God, I think occurs two or three times in the entire New Testament. That's it. Mm-hmm. But we always talk about that. Like that's the normative. Yeah. yeah. And man, we, we need to have a healthy fear of God. So, so yeah, Jesus, that can happen. All right, um, moving on through Luke 12, and actually I think this kind of follows along with that. Um, Jesus says that anyone who speaks against the son of man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And why does Jesus really make the point to say you can speak, speak against him, but not against the Spirit? Yeah, so, I mean, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's reflecting the Trinitarian nature of God. And so what he's saying is, is I'm here to give grace. I, I am here to extend, you know, multiple mercies. And so ultimately he talks about, you know, look, you have a very, very precious moments before you stand before God. So make sure that you take advantage. So he's preaching to woo people. He's preaching to reach people. He's trying to extend grace and mercy. But what, where Luke is taking us, right, is to Acts chapter one and chapter two, where the Holy Spirit's gonna fall and uh, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell his believers. And so, um, you know, that God's spirit's gonna come and we need to be very, very careful that we don't reject the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, a lot of people, 
you know, I think try to oversimplify what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And so the truth is, specifically, no one knows exactly what that means, okay? And anybody that tells you, no, this is exactly what it is, don't listen to them. They're good people, hopefully, but no one knows exactly. There, there's, not a, uh, there's not a specific answer to, to this question. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, is that for those who are worried about the Holy, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you probably need to not be worried. Those who never think about it should be deeply concerned. Okay. And so, because if you're concerned about, oh, I don't want to commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what that means is you are inviting God's Spirit into your life. You're seeking direction. You're willing to repent. You, you have a desire and a longing to follow God's Spirit. And so, um, you know, the, ultimately, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the works and deeds of Jesus to the devil. And that's what, remember, that's what they did. Right. And so in last week's chapter is, um, you know, you do these miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus is doing these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of Luke, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, did these things. And so what they're saying is you are not operating by the Spirit of God. You are operating by the Spirit of Satan. And so it is a complete rejection uh, and so ultimately, you know, again, I'm trying not to oversimplify, but the rejection of the Holy Spirit is the rejecting of the wooing of God's Spirit, leading you to repentance and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter six and chapter 10, it seems to indicate that people can taste of the Holy Spirit, can experience the Holy Spirit, and then reject the Holy Spirit. And what the author of Hebrews says is, there is now therefore no sacrifice to save them. The gospel of John, or not the gospel of John, I can't remember his first, second, or third John, but John talks about don't pray for those uh, who commit the sin leading unto death. We don't know what that sin is, but it could be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's some things, right? And we, we have these friends, we have these people that have repeatedly been wooed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has spoken to them. Jesus has knocked on the door of their heart. They have been led to repentance and ultimately they have rejected Christ. And when those people have done that and they've rejected the movement of the Holy Spirit and they've said, Christ is not God, I don't believe, I don't repent, who does he think he is? There's no forgiveness for them. I mean, there's no hope for them on judgment day. And so um, there's there's nothing that we can do for those people. And that's why Jesus talks about there will be a grinding and a gnashing of teeth on the day of judgment because there's nothing they can say. They're mad because they're going to hell, but there's nothing they can say because he's gonna roll the tape Here's, here's, here's the countless times that the Holy Spirit spoke to you, wooed you, directed you. I spoke to you in dreams. I spoke to you through sermons. I spoke to you through friends. These people were praying for you. The Holy Spirit was wooing you, drawing you, and you rejected God's Spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no hope for those people. And so, you know, again, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying, that's not God, it's something else. So, Okay, so I just spent the weekend uh, with my brother in uh, Chicago. So I love this little uh, situation that happens in Luke chapter 12, verses 13, 14. It says, somebody called out from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such a thing as that? Um, so should we, Jesus is kind of saying like, why are you bothering me with that yeah. question? Yeah. So one of the practice of rabbis in those days and, and, and kind of way that they made income on the side was they would kind of be like um, traveling mediators. So they would go to homes and, and, you know, try to settle family disputes. Jewish and, judge Judy. Yeah. Jewish judge Judy's and they would come to your house. And so, um, you know, it's this whole idea, you know, so there's two things here is number one, you know, I, I think we should turn to the church for wisdom and disputes. Oftentimes, Christians go to the courts too fast. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says that that's a, bringing shame 
upon the gospel when yeah, two Christians yeah. sue each other in the court of law. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, that's not my purpose. So, so what does this mean? We got to use our brains. You know, the, the greatest commandment says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Use your brain. Mm-hmm. There are some things that you should just settle. So he says, tell my brother to give me, excuse me, my inheritance. Well, the law already states what, what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. The older brother in this situation is, is probably being you know, dishonest or something's happening here. Or perhaps the younger brother in this situation wants more than what he's legally entitled to. And so that's probably you know, what, what the tension is there. But Jesus says, man, that's not why I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to solve the minutia of you know, your life. And, and that's why I, I, I tell people all the time, there are some things that just don't matter. Like, what's, you know, am I supposed to get a job at Target or Walmart? I don't think God cares. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know? what's offering the best salary, what's offering, you know, the best work hours, you know, make that decision. Do you look good in khaki pants? Yeah, do you look in khaki pants, you know, or is it red or blue? You know, (laughs) what is it? Um, So there's just so much time where I I think we need not get stuck in the minutia of life. And, you know, what should I do? God has given you a mind. He's given you, you know, people in your life and you ought to be able to figure some of this stuff out on your own. That's why Jesus says, be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Don't be stupid. So how do we gain wisdom? How, how do we get smarter? Wisdom isn't attained in a day. You, you can't put wisdom in a microwave. Mm-hmm. You learn wisdom by reading scripture and learning from the people and the stories in the Bible. And that's the primary way to learn and to grow wiser and to use that as a database to pull information on to make your decisions. Right. And so, so I, I mean, it's just interesting. Jesus is just saying, that's not why I'm here. That's not my purpose. But yeah. then he says, let me tell you a story. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he tells the story of the rich fool. And so what he's saying is, is life is not all about money. Mm-hmm. So what this guy wants him to solve is he wants him to solve a financial crisis, which many people in our church, that's why they're mad at God. God, I didn't get the job. God, I didn't get the raise. God, why are my finances a wreck? And, and God's like, look, man, I'm not here to solve your financial problems. I'm here to save your soul. And so the parable of the rich fool is a guy who's all about money. He's all about things. And, and the Bible says, tonight, your very life is required of you. Tonight, God killed you. He took you home. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the story ends with be rich towards God. Don't just be all about money. And so the primary reason Christ came is to mediate our relationship with God. There's one God, Timothy says, the book of Timothy, and one mediator, Christ Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. And the reason he came, like I'm preaching, my hands are like slapping. Um, (laughs) Christ came to mediate our relationship between us and God, not our our financial relationships between two brothers that are mad that their dad didn't solve everything, maybe, you know, in, in a more clear manner. Okay, so before he tells that story, he actually responds to the guy. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And this is just a question like I'm, I kind of wrestle with all the time. Like, how do I guard against greed? Right now we're renovating a bathroom and, you know, we're doing some stuff around the house and I'm always trying to figure out how do I balance trying to like have a great place and a family for, Mm -hmm. or a great place for my family, for my wife, for my kids uh, with just like not ultimately being greedy, you know? Yeah. How do I do that? Yeah. So, so greedy is really, you know, it, it's lust for self. I mean, that's, that's what greed is. And so it's the intention of your heart. And so what I would say is it doesn't matter how much money you make. You can be poor and be greedy and you can be rich and be greedy. What you have to ask yourself is what is the desire of my heart? And so like for me, um, because I make way more money now, you know, as the church has grown than I ever, I ever imagined. And I'm not saying I'm rich. So don't be like, oh, what's he make? I'm just saying, look, I, I, I thought I might make 10 bucks. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know what I was going to make. You know, I mean, literally when I, 
when I quit my job, my full-time job, and, mm-hmm. and came on staff at Sandals Church, the offering that week was 10 bucks. So even if I get everything that's given, right? My right. wife and I are on food stamps. Yeah. So I've been blessed. And so what I've had to look at is, is the church has paid me more money and taking care of me is I've wanted my generosity to increase. And so for many of us in life, you know, we need to get to the 10% threshold of tithing, which we talked about last week. For some of us who are blessed like myself, and that's a launching pad for generosity. And I want to be generous to my church. I want to be generous to our missionaries. I want to be generous to people in need. I want to be generous to my family. And so my life will not be measured by the size of my house, but it will be measured in how I'm able to be generous. And so I think it's fine. Renovate a bathroom, but not at the expense of tithing, not at the expense of being generous to God and his missionaries. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, like why I hate car payments uh, and my wife and I try to live without those things is because I don't want to be beholden to Toyota, you know, Motor Corporation or Ford Motor Corporation and not be able to help people. And so we, we've worked really hard to be completely out of debt so that we can be generous. And so that's what I would say is, is I think it's a struggle for everyone. And anyone who says there's not tension there is not being honest. Hmm. What I would say is you've slipped into a greedy state. Um, I always can grow in generosity. I never want to grow in greediness. I never want to grow that way. So my heart is, how can I love my wife more? How can I love my kids more? How can I be more generous to my church? How can I be more generous to my friends and to my family? And so um, I love to be able to to be generous. And so I think that as Christians, if there's not tension there, you've given in. And so we need to be very, very careful, Um, you know, because there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's what's wrong is if that's what you love. You know, the Bible doesn't say that that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the mm-hmm. root of all evil. And so, well, uh, you know, in Luke 12, it says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so what is our treasure? My treasure is the kingdom of God. And, you know, so every year, you know, Tammy and I are potentially audited by the IRS because our giving, our charitable giving seems unreasonably, you know, large. And so we just say IRS, bring it mm-hmm. because- um, that's, that's the, that's the treasure of my heart. And what makes me sad is it, it makes me sad that the IRS thinks that that's unusual Yeah, because what they're saying is other Christians don't give at this level. And I think that's sad. And so, you know, I don't know if we're going to ask this question, but there, there are clearly parables about servants in, in Luke chapter 12. And, and this is what Jesus is saying is, look, man, the master is leaving, but he's coming home mm-hmm. and my money is not my money. My money is my master's money. And one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be accountable for how I spent my money. And I want to be able to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. My resources aren't my resources. They're his resources. My money's not my money. It's his money. And I'm grateful that I've been able to give and help build this church and and support missionaries and see people blessed. And I want to be about that. And every Christian should understand that one day we're going to stand and be held accountable before God. And one of the primary things, I mean, Jesus talks about more money more than any other subject because it's a bigger problem for most of us than any other subject. Mm-hmm. Totally. Thanks uh, for that. You're yeah. welcome. And kind of tying with that, so right after that, Jesus says he turns to his disciples and says, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or to eat or clothes to wear. And we talked about worry a lot this weekend, but in that verse, Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples. So then what does it mean for worry for everyone else? Yeah, so this is not, you know, you should not tell your non-Christian friends, don't worry. They should be worried. They should be very worried. And why? They do not have a unique relationship with God. Uh, We have a very unique relationship with God because of the mediator, Christ Jesus. He has died on the cross for our sins and he has 
made a path for the Holy Spirit to be in our lives and the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And so Jesus is saying here is don't worry because God's your father. He's your father. You know, this week, Tammy and I traveled to um, uh, Idaho via Denver, Colorado, and we, we flew through a, a, a tornado. Um, we didn't know this, but we landed in Denver International Airport and there was nobody there. I mean, it's a huge airport. There's nobody there. I'm like, hmm. oh my gosh, did the rapture happen? And we got left, what happened? And then we hear over the loudspeaker, please head to a tornado shelter. You know, there's a tornado watch in effect. We were the last plane to, to land. Every other plane was delayed and circled for an hour. So nobody was coming in. And let me tell you, that plane shook. And, and not only was it like a tornado warning, but it was a snowstorm. So when I'm looking out the window, all I see is white. And the pilot came on and said, we're gonna have to land by instruments because I can't see. It was very, very scary. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting ready to worry. And so what does Jesus say? He says, can worry, can, can worry land the plane safely? No, can worry extend your life? And, and so the illustration here is one cubit. And so the measure of a cubit is about a foot and a half, according to our measurements, 18 inches. Can, can it add even a foot and a half to your life? Can it add minutes, seconds to your life? No, know this. And this was my prayer as we're up there in the sky, bouncing around. Um, <laughs> a snow-nado. A snow-nado, it was horrible. Um, is look, man, my life is in God's hands. And if it's my time, that's for him. But remember back to our earlier question, I was praying for safety. God mm-hmm. bless the, the instruments, bless the pilot, give him wisdom. I can't land this plane. I am completely, utterly helpless. And so what does Jesus say? He says, you are more valuable to God than a sparrow. What's a sparrow? The cheapest form of sacrifice for poor people. This is what poor people would sacrifice to God. And then he says, and you are more valuable than a raven. Ravens are nasty birds, right? I mean, ravens are what pluck your eyeballs out when you're being crucified on the cross. I mean, ravens are like demonic, man. He's saying you are more valuable than that wicked blackbird that's scary. Mm -hmm. You not only that, but every hair on your head is counted. Every moment of your life is precious to God. He loves you. Your life is in his hands. So, you know, if I die of cancer or I die in a plane crash, my life is in his hands and I need to stop worrying and I need to start trusting that I have a unique relationship with God. And again, he's speaking to disciples. This is not for everybody. This is a unique relationship that Christians have with God. We have a unique connection. You don't need me. You don't need to come through me. You don't need Pastor Matt to pray for you because he's your dad and you can cry out to him and he will listen to you. And so, um, so stop worrying and start praying. Mm-hmm. Start talking to God about things because he can change your life. He can save your life. He, he can do that. So, Dude, I just got to say last night I was flying over Colorado. And all of a sudden, the planes, the plane started shaking. Yeah. The pilot, man, he was no help because he got on and, and he said, cabin crew, please be seated as quickly as possible. Yeah. Which means like, we're all going to die. <laughs> I literally was like, dude, could you at least put on a chill attitude oh, before you uh, pop okay, out? Okay. So just so speakers? you know, I took off last night from Denver, Colorado. Dude. It was horrible. Yeah. Okay. The worst, the worst is when you travel with um, foreign uh, airlines and they speak over the loudspeaker in the language. And so like French always sounds to me like we're dying. Like, it doesn't matter what they're saying, you know, it just, I'm like, oh, we're going to die or some other language. And so I'm like, please, can we have a pilot that speaks English? Because I, I don't, I want to know what's happening. My wife doesn't want to know. She gets nervous when he says, prepare for rough air. I'm like, I want to know that. Cause that means he's not surprised yes, or she's totally, not surprised. Totally, totally. My wife would rather die in ignorance. It's just crazy. <laughs> crazy. Oh, man. I love that woman, but she drives me crazy. Mm. Tammy, yeah. listen to this podcast. Stop worry, worrying. Worry was not helping me last night. It, uh. Okay, but that's an affirmation that I don't make these stories up. It was rough over Denver. It totally was. And we took off out of that. It's amazing. Well, and we got, we're here for the podcast for you, the wonderful listeners. We could have both died, but we didn't worry. 
Well, maybe we worried a little. I worried. I worried. <laughs> I, worried I worried a little bit, and then I I shifted from worry to just like really making sure I didn't go to the bathroom right there in my seat. <laughs> it was pretty. It was pretty rough. So. I had a nice normal night last night. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. back, guys. Yeah, because you didn't go anywhere. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's ask this question. Um, Jesus is telling the story here in verses forty six to forty eight about the master and the servants. Uh, this gets intense. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants, but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. Okay. So Jesus is telling the story. What does this mean for people who haven't heard the gospel or yeah. about Jesus? So let me start off with this and then disagree with myself at the end. What does it mean oh. for people who have who have not heard the gospel? Nothing. Because, and then we'll get back to it, okay. and then I'll say something. So, I, okay. <laughs> because the, who's Jesus talking to? Believers. Right. Servants. And so he's talking about those of us who call ourselves Christians, we need to be very, very careful in the way. The apostle Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We need to be very, very careful. So I think that this is a warning and an admonition, especially to people like us who work for Jesus we, we better not mistreat his servants. We better take care of his people because the master will return and he will handle us. And he actually ends with these words, to much whom's been given, mm-hmm. much will be required. Mm-hmm. The, the book of James actually says, you shouldn't become a teacher unless you understand that you will face a stricter judgment. So we need to understand this. So people like you and I and Stephanie, we're gonna stand before God and we're gonna be held more accountable than people who simply came to church and, and just you know tried to do the right things. And so in the book of Acts, we got to remember everything in Luke is pointing to Acts. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says that wolves will come up from amongst your own congregation. And I've seen this through the years, even at Sandals Church, we've had pastors that have come on staff. I didn't know they were wolves, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know that. I wouldn't have hired them. But through process, I realized these people make their lives off of eating sheep and they're very, very dangerous. And I've had to discipline, get rid of pastors that have been very, very dangerous. And one day those pastors will be held accountable. I will be held accountable if I don't protect the sheep. And people get mad at me. The sheep in our church get mad when we let a pastor go or we let a person go. And it's like, look, man, they're a wolf. Mm-hmm. My job is to protect you, um, you know, even from those people you consider your friends. Mm-hmm. And so we have to understand this, that those who serve the gospel, those who are in authority with the power of the gospel, we got to be careful. Because, you know, some of the people, right? Jesus says on that day, you'll say, Lord, I did all these things. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never, ever knew you. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus uses in the gospel of Luke, uh, the word Gehenna for hell. Right. And so the word Gehenna is, you know, the Valley of Hinnom. And it's it's a really weird place. And so hopefully you and I'll get to go to Jerusalem one day and I'll show you exactly where this is. And maybe Stephanie can come too. But basically what it was, it, it's the place in the book of Jeremiah. And I believe in second Chronicles where, uh, one of the kings of Israel, I think King Ahaz sacrificed his sons to a God. Mm-hmm. And so it was just this awful, evil place. And like the Israel never forgot that, huh. that this is where the king of Israel killed his sons to this pagan God. And so it became this place of just like spiritual rebellion. Eventually it became the, the trash dump. And so, because nobody wanted to live there, it was kind of a wicked place. And so it just became the place where all of Israel would throw their trash. And so the way that the ancient world dealt with trash is they burned it. And so you know, this Valley of Hinnom was on fire all the time. And so when Jesus talks about hell, he uses this burning dump as an example of hell. Mm-hmm. And he says, you don't want to go here. And that's where you'll be thrown 
if you are if you are not doing what the master has asked you to do. And so what's interesting here though is he also seems to indicate that there are various forms of judgment on the day of judgment. And so as Christians, we are forgiven of our sins, but we will be held accountable. So ultimately, right, we're gonna go to heaven. The apostle Paul says, but our deeds will be tested as by fire. So some of us might be smoking a little bit, you know, right. in heaven and be like, hey, Justin, you know, you're, you know, look like you just came from a barbecue. Exactly. And you're like, yes. So there's going, we're going to stand before God and we're going to be judged and, and, and we're going to see what righteous deeds last, right? The, the deeds of straw and the deeds of hay, the book of Corinthians says will be burned up. Only the deeds of gold, the precious metals will survive. And so uh, we're all going to stand before God. But Jesus seems to indicate that the level of judgment is going to be based upon your understanding. What did you know? And so that's what I would say to people is God is going to judge people based upon their level of understanding. So I'm going to go back and disagree with myself. Okay. Is this about non-believers? No. Now I'm going to say potentially. So we need, to, we need to trust that Jesus Christ is the good judge, that he's the righteous judge, and people are going to be held accountable based upon what they know. And so we still need to preach the gospel. We need to not be lazy. We need to right. proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth but we need to trust at the end of the day, Christ is good, he's merciful, and he's loving. And when he judges people, he will do so fairly. So now let me say this, not everyone will experience the same thing in hell, just like not everyone will experience the same thing in heaven. God will, God will dispense rewards for those of us who have served righteously in heaven, and God will dispense harsher punishments for those who've been truly evil. And so we need to understand that, that God is the righteous judge and he will be fair and equitable in the way that he dispenses judgment. So not everybody's experience in hell will be the same and not everybody's experience in heaven will be the same and on the new earth. And so that's what he's talking about. And, and so what's, what's interesting here in this story, and a lot of Christians don't get this, he talks about the master goes away and he says, be ready, be ready, prepare yourself. Be ready all night. And so the idea is, is even if it's into the third watch. And so we don't know exactly what time that means. If it's the Roman calendar, you know, the Roman time, it could be, you know, um, maybe four or 6 a.m. If it's okay. the Jewish time, Jewish watch, maybe midnight to 2 a.m. So what does he mean late into the night when right. the master returns? He says, be ready. But what's so interesting is notice how the master returns. He comes to serve his servants. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is don't miss out on the rewards of being faithful because mm. when I return, I'm going to serve you and you're going to share with me right. in my inheritance. And a lot of Christians jump right over that sentence because we get scared by the ending, but we don't see that when Christ returns, he comes to serve his fellow brothers and sisters. It's amazing. That's awesome. Because we are children of God. And so there's this beautiful thing that we don't want to miss out on. Um, so don't miss out on that verse. So That is awesome. All right, um, wrapping up now, Luke 12, there's one more chunk from Jesus. And I think it's really interesting as we're getting ready for Easter this week. Uh, Jesus says, I've come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. How on earth do we process this first? Because it seems... So the opposite of how we tend to explain what Jesus came to do. Yeah, well, as Christians, you know, we, we've, we're trying to make Jesus so attractive. We've divorced him from his teachings. And that's what's so sad is. So let's, let's interpret this verse in context. So Jesus says, I've come to bring fire. I've come to bring division. And so what he's saying is, and there, there's multiple meetings here. Remember, we have to interpret it in Luke and we have to interpret it in light of Acts. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've come to, to bring fire, a baptism of suffering. 
So what's he talking about? I'm going to die. I'm going to die to build my family. So what's going to happen when I build my family? My Jewish brothers and sisters are going to be split. Some are going to believe. Some are going to reject. Fathers are going to believe. Sons are going to reject me. Sons will believe. Mothers will reject me. Families are going to be split over who I am. And this is true even in Judaism today. They're split. There's Messianic Jews who believe in Jesus and there are Jews who completely reject Jesus. And so here's one of the things, you know, one of the key misunderstandings of Judaism in light of the Messiah and one of the number one, this is at least in my conversations with Jews uh, today who who are awaiting the the Messiah. They don't believe that he's figurative, but they believe in a literal Messiah. Some Jews have kind of said, well, it's kind of figurative and it's, you know, like a make-believe Messiah, but not many Jews still are awaiting the coming of the Messiah, Orthodox Jews, especially. Um, The reason they reject Jesus is because he didn't bring peace on earth. And I think that they misunderstand the type of peace that Christ came to bring. And so I'm going to read Micah 5, 5. Okay. And it's talking about the Messiah and it's talking about the coming one, the one who will be, who will be born and the one who will make things right. Um, it literally calls him um, the ancient of days. So let me give you Micah 5 too. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ru- the ruler in Israel, whose coming is from the old and the ancient of days. So Micah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. So he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which right, even Herod and his people figured that out. But listen to what he says in verse five, um, or let's go in verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure. And for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So this is an eternal kingdom, but listen to what he says in verse five. And he shall be their peace. So I think that they've misunderstood that Jesus, the Messiah would bring peace what, the, what Mike is actually saying is Jesus will be your peace. And the word there is shalom. Hmm. So Jesus is not going to bring peace like in terms of an absence of, absence of conflict between each other. What Jesus is going to bring is an absence of conflict between you and God. He's going to mediate peace. He's going to sit down with the two parties, God and mankind, and he's going to mediate peace and Jesus shall be your shalom. And so I think they misunderstood the kind of peace that Christ would bring. So he's going to separate us because we have to ask ourselves and Jews have to ask ourselves, Muslims have to ask themselves and, and, and those of us who are Christians, how am I going to be made right with God? As a Christian, the answer is only by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why Easter matters so much to us. Totally. Jesus Christ dying on the cross is the only way that we can be made right with God. And so Jews accept that sacrifice or reject it. And by rejecting it, they're missing out on the peace. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm bringing fire into families. Fam, families are going to split over me. Why? Because he is creating a family. Now, let me say this. Cults like Jehovah Witnesses, uh, even in Mormonism, even in some very, very small churches, I've seen this text used to separate families. Okay. And so what I say in our church is, man, you need to have a relationship with your family. Don't separate from your families. Love them, pray for them, encourage them. You, need, you can worship at church and you can still love and have a relationship with your family as long as it's not something that's abusive, you know, but connect with them. Cults try to divide. Cults always try to huddle up and, and not, not allow any type of thinking. And that's a very, very dangerous way. And they use this verse to do that, that, well, you got to pull away from your family. And I just think, no, I want to see my family saved. Right. And so I need to be loving and kind and gracious to them. So I reject kind of that cultic like view of this text, but we need to understand that we're going to have to make choices. 
These are real choices that Hindus are having to make, that Jews are having to make, that Muslims are having to make all over the world. And here's, this is what's so sad for us in America, is in America, we can receive Christ and still have our family. In many parts of the world, the second they say yes to Jesus yeah. is the second they lose their family. I think mm-hmm. about when I visited um, Muslim Africa mm. and I met an individual who came to faith in Christ. His own wife poisoned him. Whoa. His own wife tried to kill him wow. because he rejected Islam and he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Wow. His own wife, the mother of his children, tried to kill him because there was a real tearing there of the family. Yeah. And so there's a real tear that takes place. And we need to understand that, that our loyalty is to Jesus. We have a biological family that we are to love and be grateful for, but we have a spiritual family that we will spend eternity with. You and I for eternity will be, you know, and and my brother's a Christian, so that's not the perfect example, but we will be more connected than if my brother had rejected Christ and we were simply biological. Mm Mm-hmm siblings because you and I are spiritual siblings. We are brothers in Christ. Stephanie and I are brother and sister in Christ. We're family forever. And we need to be loyal to each other in that way. Not in a cultic-like way, yeah, but in a healthy, loving way. I see Sandals Church as, as just as important part of my life as I see my family. I would no more abandon this church than I would abandon my family. I love this place. These are my people because these are Jesus's people. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Okay, now let's skip ahead to Luke. So I have come to bring, excuse me, Acts. I have come to bring fire. What happens in Acts 2? Tongues of fire fall. Yeah. And so, and and he talks about the baptism that he's going to experience and that flip that with the baptism that we experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a fire that's coming from heaven that will empower us and fill us with his presence, that will fill us with his power. And so I think, the word fire here is specifically used by Luke or by Jesus to point to both the negativity of being a follower of Christ and the positive nature of being a follower of Christ. So there's a negative Mm -hmm. splitting, right? So what does fire do? Fire separates biological families, but in Acts 2, it will unite spiritual families. Hmm. So we will be united in Christ with the fire that comes from heaven. And just so just think about that, right? In terms of baptism, there's the baptism that Christ faced, the baptism of suffering, and there's the Holy Spirit baptism that we get when we receive Christ that comes initially on the church in Acts 2. Dude, Luke um, chapter 12 is pretty intense. Yeah. I, I, you know, I feel like I say this every week. Like every week I tell my wife when I'm studying, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest chapter ever. And it's because it's scripture. Mm-hmm. Every single chapter is that way. And there's just such amazing, amazing stuff. So let me jump back to a question we had last week about Abel. Oh yeah, yeah, you know? Cain and Abel. Yeah, so I wish that I could have answered that again, but I, my hunch was right. You know, Abel is mentioned in the book of Enoch and I didn't realize this, but I, I dived into this. And so Abel has a unique role role in Christian lore and, and kind of Christian myth. And so let's talk about him from a scriptural perspective. So the book of Hebrews actually talks about the sprinkling of, of Christ's blood is a greater offering than that of Abel. Right. And so what I didn't realize is, is Abel is this, kind of first example of innocent suffering. He's this picture of, you know, the, the um, you know, someone who's been murdered and was innocent. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes a Christ-like figure mm-hmm. uh, and he becomes a very, very powerful figure, you know, in Judaism, in Catholicism, and even in Christianity. And so what Abel is seen as, you know, is as a prophet in a loose term. So he's, he's, he's loosely like a prophet. He's, he's a speaker for God. He is, he is killed because his sacrifice was accepting to God. And that made his brother Cain jealous. Mm -hmm. Think about that 
in, in, in light of Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice, which is why Hebrews says his blood is better than yeah. the awesome blood of Abel. So Abel's blood was awesome. So, you know, he says from, from Abel to Zechariah. So, so I look into this and this is what I thought. You know, anytime you see A to Z, right? Always think Alpha and Omega, think oh, okay. beginning and the end. And so, you know, in our, in our um, Christian Bibles, our book ends differently from the Jewish Bible. So the Jewish Bible is separated into different categories. So, you know, the Torah, the writings and the prophets. And so the first book in the, in, in the Jewish Bible is um, Genesis, just like ours, but the last book in the Jewish Bible is Second Chronicles. So the last book in our Bible is Malachi in the Old yeah. Testament. So uh, Abel is the first person killed in the book of Genesis. Zechariah is killed in Second Chronicles 24. Huh. And he's killed at the altar mm. because he's prophesying the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he's killed. So there's some confusion as to which Zechariah there is because Zechariah is a very, very popular name. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matthew attribute, attributes it to the Zechariah that the minor prophet Zechariah. Luke seems to be leaning towards the Zechariah in second Chronicles 24. We don't know specifically because there's, you know, there's not clarity there, but I think what, what we need to think of it is Jesus is saying, look, you have killed the prophets from A to Z. From beginning to end, you've killed the prophets. And I think Luke is trying to show us why Jesus, the prophet, would be killed. Because this is what happens to those who speak for God. It's always happened and it will always be that way. The world will always kill God's messengers. Hmm. And who is the ultimate messenger? Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. And so, you know, when we're in Israel, um, we have Jewish guides that are amazing, amazing people. And they, they know more about the New Testament. They know more about Jesus than the people in our church. And so they have a really hard time. How can these people know so much about Jesus and reject him? And here's the answer, because that's what they've always done. Hmm. The majority of Jews throughout history, even though they're the chosen people of God, have always rejected the prophets. They have always rejected the teaching of Christ. And so we need not be judgmental or have an arrogant attitude, but we need to spend that on ourselves. And the reality is most of us reject the words of Christ, the words of God, the teaching of Christ. And we need to be very, very careful that we not judge them for something that we do ourselves. And so that's the answer is, you know, chosen or not, man, they, they, they reject Christ. And it's so sad. And that's why, that's why Jesus is saying that you've always done that from Abel to Zechariah, you've killed the prophets. And so what's going to happen to me? I too am going to be killed. Hmm. So... And that's what we are uh, getting ready to yeah, Good Friday. experience with Good Friday and Easter this coming weekend. So, yeah, cool. Well, this is uh, this is awesome. Thank you guys for sending in your questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Love you guys. And if you this if this is your first time maybe listening to the debrief, uh, every single week we are taking your questions from Pastor Matt's sermons and from the readings that we're doing in Luke and Acts. So if you've got a question, reach out to your community group leader and they will get them here on the show. If you are one of our community group leaders here at Sandals Church and you have no idea how to get your questions, uh, the questions from your group on the show, we'll just uh, reach out to our group's team and they will point you in the right direction. Next week we'll be, will we be looking at Luke uh, 13 this weekend? Yeah, we'll be looking at Luke 13 intensively next week. I'm probably not going to touch a lot on on the Easter message, so they'll need to tune into the podcast to really dive into Luke 13 because I want to preach a message that's 
I, I think will specifically draw people back. We may have one or two verses in the message this week from Luke 13. So don't miss the debrief so that you can follow along in Luke 13 next week. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, hey, we want to make sure to close with your thoughts on an inspirational quote. Stephanie, you got one for uh, this week? You know, I sure do. I was actually going back through the Britney Spears anthology last week, and uh, she had a line that just said, if you feel it, let it happen. Thoughts? Yeah, that's, that's worse advice than follow your heart. Oh, well, there you so, go. Which I think, right? Get progressively worse each time. Yeah, and I think Britney Spears is, you know, God bless her heart, is a great example of what not to do with your life. So, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, my, my girls when they were little loved Britney Spears. I was never a big fan. So, That's fair. Yeah. I think it takes time to really appreciate her. Yeah. There's a lot of dumb I've wisdom that out time. there. Don't you I'm, think? There's a lot of dumb wisdom out there. Yes. Is that, is I, that, a, is that can, dumb wisdom? Yeah, I think because common sense is not common. True. It should, wow. We should call it uncommon sense. Let's start a movement. Yes. All right. Peace, guys. Have yeah, an excellent listening. week. We'll see you back here next week for the debrief. <laughs>